Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Natasha Margolis. I'm with the New Books Network, the Genocide Podcast, and I'm with Chris Moriella today. We're going to be talking about his book, Forced Confrontation, The Politics of Dead Bodies in Germany at the End of World War II. Currently, this book is coming out in paperback. And Chris, thank you for talking to me today. And can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your career, any other research topics that you've written about before this book? Okay, thank you very much for talking with me today. It's uh, really great of you. My name is Christopher Moriello. I am a uh, professor of history at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. Um, I also serve as the director of the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the university, and I've been in that capacity since the center opened in 2013. And uh, my areas of research are modern European history with special emphasis on World War II, the Holocaust, Nazi Germany, and 20th century European politics. Cool. So um, your book, Forced Confrontation, looking at the historiography of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, your book seems to have kind of broken out of the traditional um, narrative and has used some really new techniques, exciting ways of engaging with the history and, and people and their collective memory of the history. So could you explain the methodology that you used when you wrote this book? Well, having taught the Holocaust at the undergraduate and graduate level, <clears throat> I realized that Holocaust historiography has actually gone through some fundamental transformations since 1992. Um, and increasingly, Holocaust uh, studies and the history of the Holocaust has been really, I think, um, challenged by some of the newer methodologies that are coming out of fields such as anthropology, particularly around new ideas around forensics and the study of dead bodies and human remains, and then, of course, memory studies. So when I approached forced confrontation as a topic, um, I did not have the latter, what I just mentioned, in mind. I, I came at it um, as a uh, Holocaust uh, German historian um, who was interested in going to the archives and finding out what happened, um, and then providing some analysis and some narrative around it. Um, around 2012, 2013, I also um, was working in our center with a, a number of faculty, uh, particularly faculty working around forensics. And when I mentioned these reburial uh, processes around death marches in April and May of 1945, it was actually conversation within the center itself and among scholars and then networks of scholars particularly in Europe, who were working on what Catherine Verdery has called the politics of dead bodies. Um, and it got me really interested in if I am discovering or, or examining American soldiers coming across dead bodies and making meaning of that interaction with German civilians, then I should start reading much more broadly around uh, forensics and around cultural studies of dead bodies. And then also memory and meaning. How, how do 
people make meaning um, out of certain situations and then moving forward, how do they make their own meanings and out of their historical memories. So it really was um, an intersection between a more traditional approach to Holocaust studies with this kind of new focus and dimensions of the kind of cultural politics uh, of dead bodies. So I, I hope that the book really is on the leading edge of kind of uh, what I've always tried to do, which was to incorporate new methodologies and new approaches with uh, traditional empirical evidence. So one of the things that I think the listeners need to know about your book is that while you are, you know, you're teetering on this edge of all these new methodologies, you take us from a very comfortable space of introducing us to what U.S. official policy in um, occupied and conquered Germany at the time was, um, and then adding on to this your developing narrative around these micro incidences in specific cities. So the book deals with um, the months of April and May in 1945. And um, up to that point, what was the U.S. policy, the official policy for the occupying armies? Well, it's very interesting because this, again, is something I had to do a lot of research on to, to really read secondary sources and then primary sources on American occupation policy. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it was very popular, uh, American occupation policy studies and political science mm -hmm. studies in the 1950s and 1960s about American occupation. And, and when did America move from a more kind of punishment base that Germany needed to be punished and disassembled um, as a nation state and rehabilitated as a Cold War ally, which is the traditional kind of interpretation. Mm -hmm. So really looking at um, this policy, um, there was, and this is an important part of the book, and it actually came to me uh, during the research, is that there really was no policy to force German civilians to witness the war dead and then to, if you will, create these uh, public funerals around the dead bodies and then to bury them with this sense of collective guilt, that this was actually a, what I call, local or boots-on-the-ground decision by field commanders, and it was not in any way supported by any policy at the Supreme Command Allied Powers, Eisenhower's level, or at any kind of command level uh, that was, you know, above the field level that I could find. So I found that really interesting is the official policy was, you know, Eisenhower's proclamation that Germany was a defeated nation, but then we have these really... Um, interesting local events where field commanders take it upon themselves to carry out these forced confrontations of German civilians to dead bodies. And this is American military government and American military active troops who are carrying it out. Nobody stops it. Um, I am sure that, uh, that the upper command and uh, even at the Eisenhower's level knew about it. Um, and it just seems to be part of the ebb and flow and, if you will, the fog of war. Um, in April and May of 1945, because the war is still going on. And that's something I, I always emphasize in the book is that this, the war is not over yet. And they don't know the war is going to end on May 8th, 1945 in Europe. So this is active military conditions and situations. Right. And I think you did a really good job at underlining that even the general policies that were issued to the military government were kind of ad hoc, like, hey, you know, yeah. do what you need to do. Um, one topic that you mentioned that I thought was really important was 
the explanation that the soldiers believed in is why we fight. Mm-hmm. And I know that they had received the indoctrination of the Frank Capra movies, mm-hmm. but um, your book leads us to this new place where why we fight is the ongoing development of these men confronting this Germany they didn't expect. So mm-hmm. um, what caused the change from them coming in as uh, a military unit conquering German armies to uh, dealing with the actual German reality that was there? That's a, that's a great question because one of the, one of the um, goals um, that I had for the book was to get at the American military experience on the ground. And as you know, um, it's very difficult for historians using documents, even images, to get to what was the actual experience like uh, for the soldier. Um, After reading many soldiers' diaries and reading many official and unofficial reports, as well as some of the earlier research I did on on, on U.S. military um, action and occupation, um, it seemed to me that that the army was some somewhat the soldiers ordinary soldiers were somewhat skeptical of some of the propaganda about Germany, um, and they were also fighting and they were actively engaging once they were over the Rhine River and into Germany itself. They're actively engaging German civilians, and I think that they saw. Germany as an occupied country and the German civilians as occupied people. But once they came upon death marches and the mass graves that were associated with death marches, and then of course the concentration camps in April of 1945, they began to see this in different terms. They began to see themselves as acting out um, some sense of justice. Um, I I, I called it an American sense of justice that, you know, this murder was done. People need to know that these innocent people were murdered by Germans. Um, they didn't differentiate between Nazis and necessarily Nazis and ordinary Germans. Um, they saw Germany was responsible as a nation for these murders. They were to uncover them before those bodies could be covered up. They were to show the German civilians what the government did in their name and that these victims would somehow be remembered or have some sense of justice by the actions of American soldiers. And, th- and that, was a, that was really a difficult part of the research and the most creative part of the research and the writing was trying to bring to life um, an emotional response to a very traumatic and experiential moment. I think your book really does a nice job at illustrating this with the, the first example you give of the forced reburial at Nordhausen. Yes. And that's your first micro example. So how did that shape those, uh, the rest of your book by developing this one set? It's an excellent question. Uh, the Nordhausen was interesting because I, I, I had seen photographs of Nordhausen, um, the, the, the bodies that were in the, in the V2 rocket assembly area, um, the slaves who worked in the caves and in some of the facilities there. I saw those bodies laid out, and it looks like a field of bodies that American soldiers are walking around in. I had a really good uh, description of the Nordhausen um, 
reorganization of the corpses and how they were laid out and then how the townspeople buried them. And I, and I came across that in the American uh, Military History Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, in the archives in a journal of a soldier um, who said, was writing to, a, it either had to be his mother or his wife or his girlfriend back in the United States, about this, uh, the, the, the state of the bodies, how, uh, you know, emaciated the bodies were. And this, for many soldiers, Nordhausen and then, you know, Kordorov and the other, Kordorov and uh, Buchenwald, are the first kind of exposure that American soldiers have to what we now know as the Holocaust. Um, and it is a very visceral response to it. And they are looking around at the neighbors, uh, who, who are in the neighboring towns, excuse me, in Germans, and, and connecting the role of civilians to the body. So that, that, that to me was the first image that um, I really was able to look at and see American soldiers with dead bodies, with German civilians. And I had to learn more about what was going on there and try to recreate, if you will, the tensions and the anxieties and the fears that must have existed at that level of direct um, experience and direct relationships. I think that when you tapped into the emotions of these American soldiers, I think you bring the reader's emotions into play as well. And you kind of, um, you re re engage people on this topic that kind of seems, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say it's mundane, but it's, it's well known. And even though you're not presenting anything that's new, evidentially you're, you're re presenting it in terms of humanity so when um, the Americans get to um, – and there, these things are happening in these cities at the same time. You're not talking about one, um, one troop going through and experiencing this. But in your example of Schwarzenwald, you talked about the American ultimatum and how mm-hmm. the Americans um, are using this idea and how they're engaging with the people there. So what was the significance of that? Um. I have to give credit to one particular independence scholar. Um, um, we were working um, on this. Um, I was working. I knew about Schwarzenfeld. I was coming across Schwarzenfeld again and again and again. Um, and a- as I did, I began to really look at um, the town itself. And I needed to find out more about this ultimatum. When was this ultimatum given? What was the, it's, it's what I call, I think, the 48-hour ultimatum that they had to have all the coffins built for the, forget the exact number, 133, I think, bodies that were there, and they had to do it within 48 hours. Um, and what, what Schwarzenfeld really taught me and why I need to kind of rely on other scholars and other sources was it really taught me that um, what was happening at the local level um, was so significant to the nature of the forced confrontation, or if you will, the outcomes of the forced confrontation. So that chapter, which was actually uh, one of the most, I think the most interesting for me to write, was actually looking at the pre-existing conditions in the town prior to 1933, and then look at the third right period from 33 to 45, and then look at the relationship of the civilians to the American soldiers and to the death march that comes through the town um, in, in April of 1945 and try to weave, if you will, a local history into a larger narrative of the end of World War II and the Holocaust. So the ultimatum is actually a product of 
um, American impatience with the Germans that they want to get this done. They have to move on. They have a short period of time. They're only in town for a couple of days. The military government is is there as a temporary force to, to bring about security and order um, and water and electricity. So this is a very on-the-go force confrontation. And there's a scene where, you know, a local passionist priest from who's from Ohio begins to speak um, on the behalf of the townspeople, telling the Americans they're not Nazis. And and the forced confrontation happened, that happens there ends up just being a funeral for the for the people, a traditional Catholic funeral, and not this kind of more uh, collective guilt, vengeance-laden um, forced confrontation, but just a funeral. So I realized that the priest was running interference for the townspeople, and I thought the local history was fascinating. And I visited there and I did the research there. It was really interesting because it's a very Catholic town, and you know, I went to mass in a Catholic town, and it was there that began my interview process and my discussion with townspeople, just like it was was probably in 1800, it's the same as it was in 1933, in 1945, and then in 2013 when I was in Schwarzenfeld. Everything was around the church and breakfast after church and then discussions in a very kind of neighborhood community center. It's a very small town. And I realized the local really was the determining factor about how forced confrontation was acted out. Um, And it really excited me as an archivist to see you explain the context to go back and show the history of this area and then bring it all the way up to the present with your personal experiences. When you um, move on to your next chapter, you kind of use a little harsher term. You you named it the punishment of Neuenberg Mm -hmm. Rodenwald. So what was the difference in that city than um, in Schwarzenfeld? Interesting. Um, one, there's no intermediary. There is no Catholic priest um, uh, who's going to speak in English on behalf of the townspeople. So I think that was a major difference. Neuenberg von Wald is also um, very much April 23rd. They find the bodies. Um, towards the end of the war, there is a mass grave. It is a, it's, a, it's a larger town, if not a small city. And there are bodies strewn all over Neuenberg von Wald in the morning of April 23rd when the Third Army goes through. Um, And it seems that this um, is not just a discovery of dead bodies, but they can tell from interviewing some of the local civilians and by looking at where the mass graves were that this just happened. Um, The SS had taken a death march of um, Flossenburg prisoners on their way to Dachau along the road of, in, in Neuenberg von Wald, and then overnight on the 22nd, 23rd, um, killed um, you know over 200 um, uh, victims um, in a mass grave and some smaller graves in the farm areas. And there were still, when the Americans came, there were also survivors from the death march in striped pajamas who also met the American soldiers. So they were seeing live prisoners who could tell them what happened and to show them where the mass graves were. And there was a real tension between the soldiers and the civilians at Neuenberg von Wald, where 
There was no mediation, and the Americans also had uh, an ultimatum. And it was a journalist um, who titled his article, The Punishment of Neuenberg von Vogt. And if you look at it, and I spent a lot of time talking about the actual process of how they dug the bodies up. And then it's really interesting that Jewish prisoners would not allow the Americans to touch the bodies. Um, and um, then they put them in caskets and paraded them through town. And then they put them side by side in the Catholic cemetery in Neuenberg von Vogt. There's a real sense of collective responsibility, if not collective guilt imposed upon the Germans and Neuenberg von Vogt without an intermediary. And I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. It was immediate and there was nobody to buffer the kind of German townspeople um, and the American soldiers. So that's probably the most enamoring, would, would, would probably be more similar to it. Schwarzenfeld is the outlier because it's so mediated. Yes, and I think um, in your next chapter, you kind of bring us back to what you discussed at the building, which was what was the Americans' official policy on this? And mm -hmm. you entitled the chapter Reeducation of Germans. And mm -hmm. reeducation and denazification were kind of the same thing, but they definitely were not. So the situation in Namaring um, really had a, a different play out than yes. the previous one. So what was the differences and why do you think those were, you know, so significant? Um, Namaring um, is one of the most photographed and evidenced forced confrontations. And if you go on the web and you type in Namaring ma massacre, you will see <clears throat> images uh, of that. Um, it was over 900 bodies. Um, in a marsh in the acre of death below the railway lines. Um, it was a particularly brutal um, um, uh, two or three days at the rail siding of, of killing of killing the bodies, of killing the, uh, of the prisoners, and then throwing them into the marsh. Uh, there was also the use of um, you know, burning of the bodies, attempted burning of the bodies. Um, when the Americans came upon this, and it wasn't until May that they came upon and actually discovered this uh, largest mass grave of death march, um, 900 and some odd um, bodies, uh, the Americans um, wanted this to be um, a regional force confrontation, I called it. So they invited in a lot of the small towns around Mamring um, to come and visit. Um, and to walk among the bodies in the acre of death after they've been disinterred. Um, and then they had this sign, which I thought was fascinating. I actually had it. And, uh, you know, the sources are, you know, are photographic evidence from the Signal Corps. And they have a picture of an American soldier with a stick in his hand, a pointer, if you will. And he is pointing to a sign, you know, that, you know, in, in this field lies the, the bodies of 900 victims of Nazism. And he's teaching them. He's almost like a school teacher instructing the German civilians, particularly women and children, before they enter into the acre of death. And, and the sense of educating them about what was done to Germany and that somehow this forced confrontation would, would have German civilians come to terms with their um, adherence to Nazism, and that this would somehow educate them away from authoritarian government in the future and toward democracy. Um, and at another opportunity that you had to talk about this book, you very humbly said, I know that this work is not going to solve the problem of genocide, but it's going to illuminate new possibilities for understanding it. And I think the final chapter of your book talking about um, what you called the necropolitics and in the post-war period and afterwards, what are the lessons that we can take away from this book? 
that's always the most difficult a part of the book to write for historians, but it's also the, I think the most important part. Part of the, the last the last chapter, which I have to say really was um, uh, was uh, a chapter that that was incomplete for a long time um, because I really had to think through the implications of what I was saying. You know, as a writer and as a scholar, I found that actually assembling the evidence and then writing uh, the narrative and talking about history um, to be rather straightforward and something I was comfortable with. Looking at the implications of this, I wanted to bring in the new methodologies that we need to look at um, not just how genocides happen, but how genocides are discovered and what meaning is imposed through the artifacts of the body uh, and dead bodies and human remains um, in making meaning of genocide. And it was really interesting um, readings that I was reading on necropolitics about how contemporary governments, um, either in Africa or Europe, Bosnia, Herzegovina, um, how they represent um, the artifacts, uh, the sites of collective memory and collective mourning like Srebrenica, how these sites are uh, remembered and how these sites are represented um, is significant in uh, how we remember genocide, how we remember the causes of it, who was responsible for it. And therefore, I think that, that we just can't leave the genocide at the act of genocide we have to really think about how we commemorate and memorialize it and think about it um, in order for us to really get at um, any sense of prevention or any sense of some of the preconditions that existed. We also have to remember these events in many ways are, are ongoing and that trauma doesn't end both individually and collectively. So it gets me uh, thinking much more about post-genocide and post-genocide societies and how we remember them. Right. And of course, we've entered this kind of new century with international crime tribunals in The Hague that was created because of what happened with the Holocaust. But we know that the issue of genocide has not stopped. It's kind of even sped up in some areas. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the most powerful things I think that you keep reemphasizing in this book is that these American soldiers who weren't expecting to see all of this devastation of humanity really were just, they were reacting, at, like you said, at a visceral level, at a human mm -hmm. level. And they didn't really discern among the victims who was what. Mm -hmm. They didn't have time to, but they also mm -hmm. really just saw this as the worst possible thing that could have happened of humanity. And of course, it was the Nazis that did this. Mm -hmm. So one of the easy things that historians and, and the general public tend to do is just kind of label this as pure evil. Mm. But the acts of the Americans in engaging with this kind of pull us back into the humanity of it. And their ways of engaging with the Germans that are still living in the area um, remind us that everyone has some losses involved and some mm. um, torn lives and mm. a lot of destruction because of the war in general. Mm. And uh yeah, can I just I just jump in because I think your your points are very um, salient. But the if I have if I have to say um, an area that I really wanted to explore and I didn't have um, the time or um, 
the sources to, to do it in a way that I felt comfortable doing it as a historian was I was really dealing with trauma at a, at a level. And if you think about discovering bodies on April 23rd, 1945, amidst a war, the largest and most destructive war in human history. And then you drill down into this microcosmic level of American soldiers coming across a mass grave filled with the bodies of, of young people and middle-aged people and old people. Um, some of them are Russian POWs. Some of them are Jews. Some of them are American POWs. Um, and they have this human visceral reaction to what we now call trauma which wasn't available as a concept to many of these soldiers or even post-war historians. So what we have is trauma on multiple levels here. We have trauma of discovery. We have the trauma of German civilians, who many of them were simply bystanders in the town and the SS were the perpetrators, um, who were forced to handle the bodies of victims and then we have Americans uh, on microphones saying that this is a German responsibility and then forcing Germans to rebury it. So we're dealing with trauma on multiple levels. And um, if I had more time and I had a thousand page book, I would have spun out much more. Uh, I've done much more thinking around trauma. And I think that's a, a really good way of connecting it to the multi multidisciplinary approaches that you've already taken. Um, I, I can see a lot of scholars out there using what you've started in a lot of different fields and a lot of different ways. So I was wondering um, if you could comment a little more on if you came across anything that was similar to this with the other allied armies when they were invading Germany and fighting their way to conquer Germany at the towards the end of the war. Yeah, it's something that that um, I, I when I first started the research, um, I, I, I knew of the American ones, and, and, and the reason I knew of the American ones was because of the images that I saw, and I know that there were American soldiers. I could tell by their uniforms and by their the, the insignias on their uniforms that they were American Third Army, usually, that were involved in this. Um, I also know from being, doing European history that Russian um, advancement on the Eastern Front and Russian sense of retribution and Russian sense of um, victimization um, and who were the victims and what was who was responsible for the victims was very different than the U.S. policy, particularly occupation policy in the Soviet Union under Stalin um, and the Soviets was very different than American occupation policy. So I had to make this decision, um, and I knew that the British um, – the Canadian um, policy was following kind of Eisenhower's and the American allied uh, occupation policy. Um, so I made a very uh, immediate decision that this was not going to be a comparative study because it would just, it would have just taken, taken over the book and it would have taken over the research. And I didn't have the Russian language skills to actually do justice to a forced confrontation on the Eastern front, knowing that that is a whole field of Holocaust historiography that's just exploded in the last 10 years particularly in Ukraine and Belarus and other areas. So I really segmented it off to something I was very comfortable with, which, which was American-German relations and American occupation. It, there are photographs in the U.S. Holocaust Memorial exhibit of Russians coming across um, dead bodies. And this is well before Auschwitz is liberated in January 44, um, January 45, excuse me. And 
um, they simply were disposing of the bodies because that they were there was a potential for disease. Um, I don't have any evidence that the Russians carried out forced confrontation. I have no doubt that they used German POWs to bury the bodies. I don't think that they blame the German people for um, the uh, atrocities of the Nazis as much as they would blame capitalism and the bourgeoisie and using a more ideological construction of, of responsibility for fascism. The Americans, I don't think, had that ideological. They had their own ideological perceptions about German occupation, American democracy, American individualism and freedom. Um, the Russian one was very different. There is a case, and it's at Ludwig Lust, outside the Voblen concentration camp, where a British paratroop division participates in having the Germans dig mass graves and bury the bodies. It's in that chapter. Um, but I think they're following the American lead. I know they're following the American lead on this, and I think that they're just a support division um, of the Third Army, and uh, they have their own in Hagenau, their own burial, but it's not – it doesn't have any of the, the, the language of forced confrontation of collective guilt. So this might be, I'm not 100% sure, but this might be an American experience. Yes. And I think you made a really good point. I mean, about the perspective of the Soviets, we see that they aren't blaming the Germans themselves for it in the Nuremberg trials and wanting to capture and punish severely with death the, the Nazis mm -hmm. that led all of this mm -hmm. and kind of really disrupting what the British and the Americans and kind of the French were trying to do to bring mm -hmm. justice mm -hmm. to the area. Yeah. So uh, that does seem to be the, the logical um, perspective on that. And I, I can't even right. imagine where you'd go to find all that Russian stuff either. <laughs> I'm sure it's, I'm sure there's some really interesting material in the archives about Soviet occupation after uh, mass atrocities. Um, you know, the Eastern front is a, uh, uh, a bit different than the Western Front, and on many levels, um, you'd have to be really uh, prepared, both linguistically, but also in terms of archival research, to do such a comparative study. I think it would be fascinating, um, but uh, not for me right now. Yes. <laughs> so, have you, have you uh, engaged on another project at this point? Are you writing another book, or is there something else that you're working on? Um, yeah, uh, the this fall. Um, when I was doing some research on um, the uh, Namring massacre, um, I came upon the, the uh, death march from Buchenwald to Dachau, and I had all of this archival material that I didn't put into the book. So what I uh, did immediately after the book came out was um, I took a little break, and then I went with all this archival material that I had about the Buchenwald death march, and then I revisited Buchenwald archives um, with a photographer and took pictures of the Buchenwald um, concentration camp and then walked the actual death march from Buchenwald to Weimar. And um, so then I wrote an article uh, that's called Evidential Remains. I think that was the title we came up with uh, for a journal called Human Remains, which is out of British, out of the university, I think in Manchester in England. And that should be coming out this fall. 
which really lets me um, go into some very deep archival research, including geography and how the geography of the death march um, played a role in the deaths that I really could just touch on in the book. But this allowed me to do a deeper micro history of the Buchenwald, Weimar, uh, uh, excuse me, the Buchenwald, Weimar, and then uh, Dachau death march that lasted for three weeks on trains and then by foot. And uh, there was actually a perpetrator who's in, who's tried in the 1947 trials. I have all of his trial records and I went through over, over a thousand pages of trial records from the so-called Dachau trials um, and was able to use trial records in a much more sophisticated and deep way. And I thought that was really interesting. I was really happy with that came out. It also has some photographs as well. So I'm really interested in using photographic evidence and, and, and digging deeper into this issue. However, you know, um, I also direct the Center for Holocaust and Genocide yep. Studies. I also teach at a state university. I have a lot of responsibilities. Um, so um, my next book is going to be um, changing gears a little bit. I'm going to start with 1945, May of 1945, and I'm going to work my way uh, forward. And I, what I'm looking at is, um, and it's and it's very, very early. Um, I'm just doing secondary source reading now is kind of looking at how the impact of World War II with, with that impact of World War II, particularly the death and destruction and kind of severing of uh, a sense of progress and liberal democratic order, um, how that um, plays out. Um, in different decades of the 20th century and right up to our present day and the reemergence or the emergence of populist politics in Europe. And I think many historians uh, are very interested in contemporary politics today, and I'm no exception. I, I think I'm going to use my historical background to talk a little bit more and research and write in a little more sophisticated way to uncover kind of the roots of uh, political crisis um, and populism um, and the fate of democracy in the post-war uh, European and American situation. Well, that sounds like you've picked a really big beast to struggle with, taking it from the zero hour to the present. So I wish you all the luck on, on working. I'm looking forward to reading that as well, because it's not as easy of a path as we've been led to think. So Yes, that's true. Well, thank you, Chris. I've really enjoyed talking with you today, and um, I hope you get a really great reception for your paperback version of this book and your article, which is coming out. And um, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me. And thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it.